Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Those of you who tuned in last week for the Sam Hain Danzig episode will know that we are quite fond of Halloween here at Gimme Radio's Metal Matters podcast. So this week, the week of Halloween, this is the special Halloween episode featuring me and my good friend Ron Martinez talking about Halloween music, movies, and all kinds of fun stuff. Ron is the lead singer of Final Conflict, as well as the bass player for Lower Class Brats. Ron also runs Crawl Space Booking, one of the premier hardcore metal punk booking agencies in the country. So sit back and enjoy the episode. Halloween is upon us, man. It's my favorite time of year. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really cool talking to you, Ron. I, uh, you're, you're someone who I consider to be in the know when it comes to music, old and new. And also, this is an excellent opportunity for us to just talk on the phone and catch up a little bit. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and not a, I guess not a more fitting time because it is both of our favorite, you know, weird, you know, the weirdo kids, you know, holiday. You yeah. know, this is this is our Christmas. Okay, so the gist of this episode, being that it's a primarily music-related episode, and this being a holiday of sorts, we're going to kind of broaden the bandwidth of things we talk about. And, you know, Halloween is a very metal holiday. You know, it deals with darkness and evil and, you know, sort of macabre subject matter and that kind of thing. So Ron and I have compiled a list of our top five extreme music, quote unquote, related topics. And it's either, it could be a band, a record, a song, you know, it's pretty much wide open, but it has to connect to, you know, hardcore, metal, punk, you know, that sort of outsider world that all of us are part of right now that are listening to this thing. Okay, I guess, like, let's go for the most obvious, like, uh, like the best Halloween songs that are titled Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go for the obvious. So for me, in in this order, it definitely goes... John Carpenter's Halloween theme, like a yeah. landmark, a landmark fucking movie. It still stands the test of time. And that theme song. Yeah, like, totally. it is. I mean, people who aren't into soundtrack music, people who aren't, don't even aren't that big in horror know that theme. They hear those, key, those notes going and they know, boom, you know, that that is definitely out of all the songs out there. There's a t- too many titled Halloween. Like definitely number one is Carpenter's version of the theme song. Number two would definitely for me be the Misfits Halloween, which is probably one of their best songs, top tier, like Glenn Danzig. Uh, and uh, the Misfits definitely led to the creation of speed metal. Yeah. Like Earth a, the Earth AD album is just a blueprint for thrash metal before before it was called thrash metal. You know, I guess you could say it was the proto punk of thrash metal. Yeah. Um, and then third, not metal, 
but still metal cool is Susie and the Banshees Halloween. Oh yeah. Which is just a creepy fucking song. Like the lyrics, everything about it. And, and definitely. And I, I, when you asked me to do this, I, I did go through my, my catalog, my mental catalog. I went online to those for me were the three, the three best songs out there, in my opinion, of titled Halloween. What about you? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I tend to agree with you on all of those. Uh, I like Halloween too on November Coming Fire uh, as well. Yeah, that was that was in there in there too. Like, not necessarily the Misfits version. Actually, man, the whole Initium album and November Coming Fire are just great Halloween soundtrack music. Yeah, totally. Related to but yeah, I got to agree with you. Halloween two that that just heavy crushing guitar riff. Related to uh, Carpenter is just that um, that theme that just pops up throughout almost all like the first two Halloween films, and then also that remake that came out. They couldn't keep their hands off of that iconic theme that Carpenter crafted for that movie. Yeah, because it's it's just filled with dread yeah. and it, and and anticipation. Like you, that's the uh, audio version of dread. Like oh shit, something. You know, I remember watching Carpenter do an interview when Halloween came out when I was a kid on Johnny Carson. And he had said uh, one of the things they had brought up was that although Halloween was such a horrifying film, that it wasn't gratuitous in violence and that uh, things were left to your imagination. Yeah. You know, and Carpenter had said one a very profound thing that has always stuck with me he goes yeah it's kind of like let's say you're you're alone in a house and and you find half of a snake the tail end half wiggling around and coming towards you where's the other half that's more frightening what you don't see yeah i mean it, it's um the first Halloween film is so atmospheric, you know what I mean? And uh, the parts that I found particularly creepy were the daylight parts, like when, you know, Michael Myers is kind of lurking around Haddonfield. And, uh, yeah, and, and in the bushes and just in, in the soft focus of the back. Yeah. And I also have to say that uh, I think he's one of the coolest dressed slasher uh, film characters you know, he just has like that work, you know, coat on and the dickies and just this kind of like evil plumber like look about him, you know, with the mask and everything. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, 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 again, it was a template, you know, like that kind of set a template that, you know, it didn't need to be overstated. He didn't need to have like rotted clothes on with yeah. maggots crawling all over it for it to, it was genuinely sinister. And uh, a lot you know, of some people might know this, but the uh, the actual original Michael Myers mask was a was a uh, William Shatner mask, apparently. Yes, it was. <laughs> they they spray painted it with primer. Yeah, and that makes it even more common. Like the commonplace sort of generic aspect of that makes it even more like frightening, you know, because it could have. It's just so normal, you know, and so common. Yeah, nothing remarkable about William Shatner's face yeah, at all. Totally. Except but, that he's a handsome devil, man, back in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, he was. And, and, and bald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and he doesn't say he doesn't say sabotage. He says sabotage. <laughs> oh, dude, that was like one of my favorite things. I on I heard that on Howard Stern where he was like yeah. refusing to be corrected by the guy. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that that I actually have a whole series of CDs of stuff like that, like. Orson Welles drunk and getting irate, being told what to do by an audio engineer. It was, uh, Nick Bogus did a CD series called Celebrities at Their Worst, and it went up to three volumes. And That's it's awesome. just, it even has that infamous uh, Buddy Rich yelling at his band members on the bus, and one of the guys had a portable recorder and recorded it. Oh, man. Like berating the band members on the bus. I, I, it's, it, it, uh, you know. You got, I love shout in front. <laughs> Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> the uh, Related to Carpenter, one of my things that's on this list is Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Which, um, oh, man, how did I miss that one? I mean, that, that's featured. one of, one of It's actually not on the soundtrack. Like if you buy a Halloween soundtrack, it's just the John Carpenter score, and they don't have uh-huh. the licensing for this song, I guess, to, to put it on a mechanical copy of the record but uh that's a incredibly halloween specific song that i had actually heard that song before i saw the movie because i had a cousin and uh the well this is this is a funny story the guy that she ended up marrying was had a huge record collection and he had the agents of fortune record which came out in july 1976 and um that song out of all the songs on that record, that's the one that really stuck with me. And then probably the following year when, um, when Halloween came out in 1978, I, um, that song, I was like, Oh, that's that song from that record that my cousin's, uh, fiance loaned me to listen to. And, uh, the, the sort of connection to those two things. And the song just has like a very autumn sound to it. It's a somber, very kind yeah. of, you know, very um, internal like vibe to it, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's you know it whispers and it does like I you, you hit it like autumn. It has a real autumn feel to it, you know. And and one of the greatest rock songs ever. I I don't know how I how that that one passed me on my list, you know. But it's yeah, genuinely creepy, beautiful at the same time, um, and you know. I, you know, a swap meet favorite. Like I remember like at the swap meet, you could get a shirt that had a grim reaper on it and said, don't fear the reaper. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I do like Boyster cult, but, uh, only maybe like a few songs on each record. You know what I mean? And- I, I have to agree with that. I mean, I think, um, there is one LP in it, in it. I, for the life of me, it escapes me that I like, um, but but overall, yeah, I'm more of a of a cuts, yeah. like you know, a cuts a cuts of theirs and and uh, and and you know probably like one of their earlier ones. And it, it's just escaping me. It's the one that looks like an Escher album cover. Is the album I oh, yeah. liked? I know that one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could you could. They're a great mixtape band. Like if you made a mixtape of all their great songs, and you were like, oh yeah, this is like great. You know, Godzilla, like you know veteran of a thousand psychic wars yeah Yeah, you know and but the scene in this movie i think is particularly cool because it starts off very light where laurie strode and her buddy i think her name is annie 
I just watched this movie last night, by the way. So that's why some of this stuff's like fresh in my memory. They're smoking weed in the car. And it's like this kind of light, like high school girl kind of thing going on. But unbeknownst to, the, unbeknownst to them, Michael Myers is tailing them in a stolen police car. So it's like the song's about death and the inevitability of death. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, and Carpenter being a music guy had to have crafted that scene, I think, around this, all these different markers. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it was like it was an omen almost. Yeah. Like that song playing in the background, and 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 he's like Mike Myers is following them. They don't even realize, and then he, basically his theme song is like playing, you know, while they're carelessly like smoking their joint. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That that was nothing. their um that was that was Blue Oyster Cult's highest charting song, by the way. Yeah, I I it, I, I wouldn't you know I think. They never really had too many mainstream hits. What burning for you? That one, yeah, um, and a lot of FM hits. But yeah, that's definitely. And I mean, that thing is still getting played and used like crazy. But, but it's a great song, man. Yeah, you know, I just, I just think it's um, Reaper over and over again. Then like, don't worry, be happy, or Stairway to Heaven. True. The macabre nature of the song, though, surprises me that it's. Um, it, it actually was such a hit with people because you know it's the 70s you know what i mean and you know the sort of darker aspects of popular culture hadn't really taken hold with the mainstream yet but no i mean everybody was like you know choking down fleetwood mac and the eagles yeah and the california sound you know i mean i grew, I grew up through that that was my era like you know as a kid and so growing up in southern california and it's like linda ronstadt you know, the eagles um, you know, Fleetwood Mac and, and, you know, Seals and Crofts, you know, like everything was light and, and mellow. And, and I think that's what, what's great about that song too, is it's, it's so, it's so, it, it, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but it, it's so covertly sinister. Yeah. It's a, uh... you know. It's subversive. It's a truly subversive song, especially at the time yeah. that it came out. Truly subversive. Yeah, it's palatable. But then when you dig deeper into the the lyrics, you start to realize that, you know, and some people thought it was about suicide pacts and all this sort of stuff, but it's just, you know, about the inevitability of death and to not fear it. And I guess it's like, in a way, it has a positive message, but it just is very sinister. The funny thing is, you know, I found, you know, of course, another another thing on this list here is a, is a Black Sabbath record. And um, I think that I got into both of those bands like around the same time. And, you know, there's the obviousness of Sabbath and the, you know, the first Sabbath record. And I'm like, yeah, this is really cool. It's like, you know, hammer horror and all that. But I found that Agents of Misfortune or Agents of Fortune, I'm confusing bands here with Hammers of Misfortune. Agents of Fortune, that record cover, I found myself looking at it a lot more than the Sabbath records because it was kind of vaguely disturbing. You know, it had that unease to it. Yeah, it was almost a Lovecraftian if you think about it. Oh, okay. The, the record cover being Lovecraftian. Yeah, because like it had that, you know, again, like there's some, this, 
that dr- that existential dread of oh, like, okay. there's something not right here, hmm. but what is it? TSOL, Code Blue, the song, which literally is about necrophilia. And once again, that record, uh, Dance With Me, I discovered that at a young age, and I was associated that with Halloween and the fall and the autumn. And uh, I know that you probably can speak a lot more eloquently about TSOL since you know a lot of those guys. But uh, but yeah, that record in particular, 1981's Dance With Me, and uh, the song Code Blue specifically, are, uh, are to me kind of like Halloween soundtracks. I remember being a kid and getting into punk rock music and going to high school parties. And uh, there's this one girl that I knew that always had house parties. And the song was like, you know, always playing on like her Halloween party. I thought, you know, sort of had that nostalgic vibe to it. Yeah, it definitely at that time, like I mean, growing up in the punk scene and well was like one of our flagship bands, you know, and, and, and a local band. And it was weird because, the only thing we had at the time was the, the posh boy EP, the first, you know, five, six song EP. And, and that was extremely political. Yeah. Like, you know, very anti-establishment, you know, and, and political record. And then they released dance with me and we see the cover and it's got this cool grim reaper in the cemetery. And the record just turned everything on its head. And that was always into the, always what TSOL's MO has been is every record was completely different, but they never, they didn't just change the tunes, man. They would change everything. They would completely transform. You know, code blue was the second song on that record. And, and you got to remember, this is like 1982. Yeah. Maybe like early 82. And I have a song that is literally writing about, necrophilia blatantly saying i want to fuck the dead was a daring and and, and mind-blowing thing to hear when you're 15 a 15 year old working class catholic kid and immediately running to my stereo and turning down the volume so my parents didn't hear jack grisham saying i don't want i want to fuck the dead (laughs) you know yeah and and uh but that whole record, yeah, was it was you know a horror punk, and to this day is one of the greatest horror punk records you know out there, and uh, you know I I still listen to that record regularly. I have my I still have my original copy that I bought you know, and every I mean everything like about that record is perfect, like great hardcore, um, even some Killing Joke type you know. Uh, tribal beats on the sounds of laughter. Yeah. Um, the creepy doors, isk you know, uh, silent scream, which was, you know, the lyrics were taken from a, a supposedly a poem, um, you know, and, uh, yeah, it, it, those guys always, with every record set themselves apart, but they will, that's their, that's the peak. I think the band, like they pretty much like, help create almost the, the, the horror punk thing along with the misfits, but even more so because they where the misfits might've been a little more campy. TSOL weren't playing at campy on that record. And 
you know, then they went and did the next record, which was, a, you know, the next full length LP had keyboards on it and was a completely different direction. But you know what? There was no need for another dance. That record's perfect. And, and they made their they made it. They made their mark and they moved on. And there really was no need for them to try and, and duplicate that. We've got that record. And it, it, that's definitely one of the you know, West Coast punk rock 101 greatest LPs ever done. And one that you I always end up like, you know, if someone's asking me about what they should listen to, that that record always ends up on that list uh, for, for multiple reasons. I, I would even almost say that record rivals some of the Misfits' best work. Oh, I totally you know? agree with that, man. I mean, and for the reason you mentioned about them changing on every record, I've always admired TSOL. And I, I even like, the, like one of the post-Jack Grisham records, too. I mean... I'm a huge Jack fan, but the record Revenge that came out afterwards, like in the sort of twilight years, I guess, um, I thought that was a solid record, you know? I don't mind the Joe Wood era at yeah. all. I like Revenge and I like Change Today. Change it's today, a different yeah. band and maybe they should have called it something different, but they're still good records. Yeah. You know, and, and with TSOL or Jack Grisham, he, he's kind of like, and I'm not trying to compare him to someone like Bowie or or the Melvins, but I, I put certain people like that, like Zappa, the Melvins, Bowie, and and the stuff that Jack Grisham does. You might not like every record that they put, but that is the record they intended to put out. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I find most admirable about the stuff that they do, or specifically that Jack was doing. Because I felt like he, I mean, not knowing specifically, but... I got the impression that he was kind of the the heart and soul of the band, and kind of was drive the driving force behind what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, to like again, like I'm not a I'm not a big fan of all of their new stuff, um, you know. But I don't want to see somebody else singing for them. Yeah, you know, the same time, like I, I uh, and when they go on stage and they play that old stuff, they they bash it like they like they always have. You know, they don't play like improved versions of those songs they they give it you know they play it just as primal and and raw as, as it is on record you know which is smart you know but but dance with me definitely goes down as one of the one of the best you know if not definitive like horror punk records ever made a real obvious one here is uh black sabbath by black sabbath and i mean I, I thought about not putting this or not talking about this particular song, but I would feel like I would be a hipster if I didn't mention Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, the first track on the self-titled record. And uh, because that song literally scared the shit out of me the first time I heard it. And because um, I'd heard the Dio records first, I'd heard uh, Heaven and Hell. And I was like, yeah, you know, Sabbath is uh killer, you know, they're, I understood like the context of the music. Like I was listening to Rainbow at the time. I checked out the Scorpions, and that record had a very, um, you know, tight kind of uh, polished sound to it. But then when a friend of mine's older sort of brother-in-law, he was, you know, there's a long story behind this guy too. But it's yeah, it's the early, <laughs> it's the early '80s, and uh, he was. Uh, discharged from the air force and living with the family of uh one of my uh friends from my childhood and uh you know he was like this older guy 
out of out of the, the military um i have to assume and this and i'm not using names here but i'm my assumption is that he was uh discharged dishonorably some information came my way so he was living at this house he had this massive stereo system and he had this insane record collection of you know eight tracks and uh and vinyl and you know we would hang out I'm not sure what he did for work, but he was around all the time. I remember it was summertime, and he laid We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll on us, which is a greatest hits record. I'm aware of that. But the song Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, even in the light of day, terrified me because I'd never heard anything like that at all. And, you know, later on, I discovered that it was the first song off of their self-titled record. I ended up getting that record. And then the album cover... I found out that it was a Boris Karloff horror film. And then everything made sense in the context of the music. You know, there was like the, the tolling bell, the rain. And then suddenly that mighty, you know, tritone chord progression. And then it was like a, a hammer horror film brought to my ears. And that sonic sort of intensity of it recreated this whole vision and and then you know and it just became synonymous with like dread and the macabre and horror and all this other stuff and it in its simplicity you know it, it leaves leaves so much you know imagination like but you do you, you listen you listen to that song and, and you picture the album cover yeah as well you know and you see this this person on the cover and you're like, well, who is she? Is she a witch? Is she, you know, what is, what is her story? And, and I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, there's a reason why that record's still in print. There's a reason why people still go and buy that record and listen to it. And, um, I can remember that as well. It was like the first time hearing it and being, uh, it, it was Black Sabbath, the song Black Sabbath, and also the song Who Were the Brain Police by the Mothers of Invention oh, that yeah. I actually was terrified of by those songs and, w- and was really glad that I was not alone in the room when they were playing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it, it's like something that will scare you in the daylight, you know? Like, yeah. Like it makes you feel like you're, you're sort of... Um, threatened by some unseen kind of force yeah it doesn't help when you first time you hear black sabbath is you know you're you know six years old with your criminal cousins who who are smoking weed and asking you if you want to listen to acid rock with them (laughs) (laughs) man that record came out in 1970 black sabbath yeah Holy yeah, shit, and, man. And, and I was born in 65, so I remember being around six or seven years old when I heard it. And I had, like, these stoner cholo cousins that would listen to, like, and I would sometimes go and visit them, and they play me Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. I always found and, it interesting that, that Mexican people were really into hard rock and heavy metal. Do you think a lot of it has to do with... um you know, with the, the, the Catholic sort of, uh, you know, early imprint of that. Yeah, man, because like you, you grow up Catholic and there's this 
know, there it's it's a superstitious religion, man. You know, you've got the saints and you've got all these like weird rules and something. It's very and um and listening to music that is like more on the darker side and, and has this dark you know dark imagery and stuff is always fascinating because it's taboo. I mean, you know, your 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 parents who like raise you to go to church on something do not do not want you. They're they're making you go to church so you don't listen to Black Sabbath. You know. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> like, and and so. Um, I think it's no different than like you know in the, the late '80s and in present day, where you get these kids that are like fervently into black metal and death metal, and then you find out like you know their parents are all like really religious, you know, and this is their way of lashing out. It's it's the same thing, you know, like even back then, because like yeah, like and my cousins, you know, they were they were like cholo stoner types you know listening that just liked heavy listening to heavy music and then they would you know they'd also jam santana and oldies sure yeah i mean i grew up roman catholic too i mean my my um my family primarily my mom's side's italian and my dad's irish so it's like i grew up around the italian side primarily and uh my grandmother was from italy and i kind of grew up in my grandmother's house for the most part and there was she was one of these Italian ladies who had the statues in the house. You know what I mean? Like the Jesus on the cross. But it was so detailed. My mom still does. Yeah, My man. mom has the saint statues. With, with the, the stigmata. Yeah, the stigmata yep. and like the blood. And, and it looked very intense, man. As a kid, I remember being afraid of Jesus Christ, you know? And oh, I used to hate walking by those, those things at night. Because all I would have to walk by the hallway and there's these saint, creepy saint statues with like three candles burning. And again, yeah, you know, Jesus with his palms up bleeding and, and, and yeah, this stuff would freak you out, you know, and, and then they wonder why we become grow up to be obsessed with horror movies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so much of that imagery, it, it was like the inverse of what the, you were being taught as a Catholic, quote unquote, and you know, I think that, you know, you and I are about this roughly the same age and it's like you come into your own in this in the 80s or in the late 70s and socially things are changing and um, everything's getting inverted and you want to be free from society and then you start seeing religion as something that is meant, you know, to be basically, I mean, let's face it, like Roman Catholic Roman Catholicism is like a peasant religion. It's a religion to for the overlords to like keep you your mind locked. So very lot, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I mean like, you know, you, you know, you go like to Catholic, you know, Catholic churches and it's mostly working class and poor. Yeah. People, exactly. You know. Yeah, it's definitely a, a peasant peasant religion and you know, um and, and I had no problem with the church as a kid growing up when the message was just about being nice and looking after the sick and the exactly. poor, you know, like those are, those aren't bad things, you know, but you know, everything gets corrupted, you know, and, and even, even I watched as growing up as a kid, I watched our church being corrupted and I started asking questions and that's when I, you know, that was even pre-punk, you know, like I started asking questions before before, like, I had even become a young adult, I had already decided that I was, a, you know, atheist, secular, humanist, whatever you want to call it. You yeah. Know? 
Yeah, totally. But uh, yeah, but that that first Sabbath record, you know, that really was kind of what you know the Christian imagery, uh, going to hell, you know, Satan, the song, the Wizard, NIB. You know, my name is Lucifer. Please take my hands. You know, at the at the time, I was like this young kid, probably still going to uh, CCD or whatever Catholic uh, studies. You know, and all this stuff was like terrifying to me but yet it was one of those things where like it was even almost like when i heard black flag for the first time it's like i don't initially i was horrified i was like oh this is like noise this isn't even who's this guy singing he doesn't even sound like he can he doesn't sound as good as the other guy that's on heaven and hell you know are these guitars in tune they sound weird you know but as weeks went by it just suddenly i wanted to listen to that stuff again you know what I mean? And that was like, for me, the beginning of kind of turning around and like having different ideas about freedom and like mind, the mind, you know, going beyond the sort of uh, prison that you're put into at a young age when you grow up in like this kind of, you know, suburban world that I grew up in, you know. And I guess that's why the Halloween movie, too, for me was like a really, I, to this day, I enjoy it. I watched it, you know, last night. And because um, I grew up in a place that, didn't really look that much different than Haddonfield, Illinois. You know, this very normal setting, you know, but there was like dread and potential danger around every corner. And growing up every now and then you got glimpses of that kind of thing. You know, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in the city where there was like stabbings and, you know, 42nd Street and Travis Bickle and that kind of thing. I grew up out in the safe suburbs, but there was still a lot of creepy stuff that went on. Yeah, it's like Halloween or or like or just any even what it what it really is about is like, you know, the terror terror going on in everyday town is like almost like you have this picture on your a painting on the wall and it's a beautiful you know, a beautiful serene painting of like a barn or something, right? And and you could look at it and that's what it is, but you remove that painting from the wall. And you turn it turn it around, and, and behind that frame is cobwebs and dead dead bugs from a spider that's been living there that's been feeding off of them, and and that's what Halloween is like. It's again, it's like the unseen, you know, like not everything, every you know, everything out front looks really beautiful and pristine and perfect, but it's not when you look behind. Yeah, and it's also. Um the time of year where like women get have the the green light to be like the sexy nurse or like the sexy vampire you know or whatever <laughs> and they get punished for it <laughs> um another thing on my list here is the song bella lugosi's dead by Bauhaus. And, yep uh, on my list as well yeah you know and uh that's the band's first single and um some people even say that's the first gothic rock song. And uh, I think, um, judging from when it came out, which was, I think, 1979, I would uh, tend to agree with that. And the song's like over nine minutes long, and apparently it was recorded live, which uh, I can see that, actually, thinking about it. Cause it has this and it's of, just guitar, bass, and drums, too. Yeah. You know, and it just, it has this like jammy kind of vibe to it, like a free form vibe after the song sort of establishes itself. 
And um, what actually, you know, it's, this, is, this is funny because uh, I hadn't even heard about House until I saw the movie The Hunger. Um, and that features in the opening scenes, the band yeah. performing that song, you know, behind like this chain link fence. And, you know, Peter Murphy's there, you know, looking vampiric, you know, very dark and evil. And I, I had heard David Bowie. I was getting into David Bowie prior to seeing The Hunger. And when I saw Peter Murphy, I was like, this dude's like the kind of like evil David Bowie in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? And um, I just discovered the band through the movie. Then I found out they had the, the Ziggy Stardust um, cover that they did. And that combined... You know, I've always been a huge Bowie fan, and now I had this new band, Bauhaus, to obsess over. So that kind of like opened the, the gateway to me. And The Hunger is actually a pretty damn good movie too. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually went to see The Hunger when it came out because Bowie was in it, and then didn't know that Bauhaus was in it. And I was, I was, I was a new Bauhaus fan. I had first heard about Bauhaus was seeing photographs of them in this British magazine called Flexi Pop. Uh-huh. And it used to always like Flexi Pop was, was like kind of a British pop, you know, magazine that would cover like new wave and, and touch on punk and, and Bauhaus had made the cover and with every issue of Flexi Pop, there was a Flexi disc and they would do, uh, it's basically what decibel got their idea from an exclusive track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for it. And when I saw the, what these guys look like, you know, and, and I was like, wow, they look like, you know, the Adams family, Yeah. you know, and, and, and this, this one's either a really ugly girl or a really feminine looking guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And, and they, they, it was, it was, they were so mysterious looking that I had to, I had to find you. I had to hear them and, and, there was no internet then. So I actually found, um, I, I went and I bought a copy of the mask album was the first thing I was able to find of theirs. And that just blew me away and it creeped me out. I mean, there's a genuinely scary sounding like the title track on that. Uh, it, it's still a very haunting song and one of my favorite Bauhaus songs, but yeah, but Bella Lugosi's Dead, I don't know if I'd say that's one of the first gothic rock songs or ever, and I'll, I'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. But it definitely is is a song that brought that whole movement, you know, that music thing to the forefront. And it, it can't be fucked with, man. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things like, hey, man, they just pressed that thing, a 12-inch version of it for Record Store Day last year. There's a reason why it's a great fucking song. It's still great and nothing compares. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's a great track, you know, and, and I got to say, uh, Peter Murphy actually looked scarier than any of the vampires in, um, in the hunger. I thought, you know what I mean? Like he, he looked feral. I think in the beginning of that. He was perfect. Just, just, you know, scrappy and scrap and just sinewy you know and and like yeah he looks he looked like one of the vampires that you would read about in like uh one of the more wretched ones that you would read about in in uh in uh 
I am legend or something. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's what he, he, he looked like back then. He didn't look like a sexy vampire. He looked like a tormented vampire that hadn't fed in years. Yeah, actually, uh, probably some of my favorite vampires are the ones that were in 30 Days of Night, too. Like in the comic book and in the, the, the movie version of it. You know, like in the movie version, it's another person's reimagining of the, those vampires. But just living in the cold, these like undead animalistic beings that actually were never human. And and I like that version of the vampire more than, you know, I guess some of the other more classical, uh, you know, versions of the vampires. Yeah, I always liked that that one, too. Like, like even though it's not that great of a movie, like uh, Sleepwalkers was the like, same thing. But they were like psychic vampires and then they were cat. You know, they, they were Egyptian or something. I remember they were afraid of cats. Yeah. yeah. The last thing I have on my list is the entire catalog of the band Samhain. <laughs> uh, but but uh, specifically, uh, November Coming Fire being my favorite record and also being a record that we covered earlier uh, this month with Anthony Papalardo, which is like sort of another part of the celebration of Halloween, um, is by far like... Uh, one of my favorite records of all time. It's definitely in the top five. And, um, you know, if you guys have out there have been listening to this, you know that London May was a guest on on the show and he was in Samhain and, you know, he's got these acting thing going on and, you know, the other bands and all this other stuff. So so um, this is a, no, not a surprise that this band logs in somewhere in this uh, list of cool Halloween stuff. Yeah, I mean, but the 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 first the two full lengths, like yeah, the the Initium and and November Coming Fire, are just yeah, they're they're up there as like uh, my all time favorite records, and it it's weird because I, I I mean I have I think I like Initium better, but I don't think it's a better like the songs are better than the, than they are on November Coming Fire, I but the things that I didn't like about Initium when I first got it are the things that I like about it now that the production on it is uneven. Yeah. And it was deliberate because Glenn was trying to create an atmosphere for, uh, create an atmosphere for each song and, and not have it just, you know, all sound the same. And I think, you know, at the time when that record came out, I was probably like, 18, 19 years old. So I wasn't, although I liked it, I wasn't ready to fully understand it. And now the 54 year old version of me yeah. <laughs> gets it and appreciates it even more. And, and I, I like, I like Initium more, even though there, I, there, there's some more kick-ass songs on the second one, just because it, it, it kind of like, you know, it was the first record and it set the tone. Yeah, well, I mean, Initium's got the shift. It's got a uh, black dream. Like those are those are like. I mean, the shift is kind of like a hor- like a horror like rock type song. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, yeah, and then and then Ar- Archangel, which was originally written for the Damned, like he right. had and had written that song to be sung by Dave Anian. 
I read that somewhere. Uh, there's, you know, it's funny. There's, um, there's a Misfits book that came out that I read called This Music Leaves Stains. And the book, I, I, cannot, I cannot in good faith give the book high marks because um, they don't have any interviews with Glenn Danzig, which is bizarre if you're going to write a book about the Misfits. You know what I mean? Hmm, yeah. Yeah. And they talk a little bit about Sam Hain. They talk about uh, Danzig's like solo thing. And the author, and I, I don't want to slam anybody, but it's like the author in his introduction, his preface to the book, he um, admitted to being, and, and I have to give commend him for this at the same time, saying that he got into the Misfits in the 90s. You know what I mean? When they had that Michael Graves like era. And he didn't oh, okay. even know that Danzig was in The Misfits. He just knew Danzig as Danzig from the band Danzig. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think, if, if it was me, it'd be like me writing um, a book about Gene Vincent or something like that. Like, I like Gene Vincent, got a bunch of records. Don't feel qualified to write about the man, though. You know what I mean? So... Um, I don't know. And, without, and then I'd write a book and I don't have any interviews or anything. I mean, obviously I can't interview Gene Vincent, but so maybe that was a bad idea, but bad uh, reference, but, but you get the gist of what I'm trying to say, but they do have some of these factual nuggets out there about that song being written for Dame Vading and, and, the, and the damned. So, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I it, it, you know, and <laughs> Another thing is you got to dig a band that you still, you know, you still don't know what is the proper way to say their name. Is it Salin? Is it Sam Hain? Is it, you know, it's like, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, according to Glenn, it's Salin. Yeah. The uh, people that I know that are involved in like the neo pagan world or Wicca and all that, so they, they say Salin, you know, and they refer yeah. to it, but me and you, yeah, I'm a, just a suburban punk, so I call it Sam Hain. You know what I mean? I was yeah, like, uh, all the punks call it Sam Hain. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I wait. What did what did London May call it? London May called it Sam Hain. I actually t we I brought that up with him, and he's like, "Yeah, man, you know, we're just like some punk rock guys, man. We'll call it Sam Hain." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay, cool. So maybe, well, well, there you have it. Yeah, he was in the band. That's right. You know, and maybe Glenn, for simplicity." Maybe uh, he called it Sam Hain too. I don't know. It's unknown. Yeah. I actually just got my hands on a, a really good bootleg, like a Sam Hain live boot. Yeah. That been getting a lot of air, like getting a lot of play at the house. Just just how good that band was live. Um, it, it's it's definitely on the November Coming Fire, um, tour, um. It's it's that lineup. So it's like Damien on guitar, Erie, um, uh, yeah, Erie, and, and uh, probably is is London May on drums um, on it. I'm not sure because it's a bootleg. It's not really uh, heavy on the info. Sure, but uh, it's it's a it's a bootleg called Black Flame, and uh, I think it's uh, it's from a show in Newport, Kentucky in 84 um so it's definitely uh oh wait i'm looking at the album right now no 
he's uh, London May's not on this. Supposedly, the lineup is Danzig, Yvonne, Damien, and Steve Zing on drums. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's the original four piece and really well recorded and an amazing performance. Like, like uh, I normally don't like to champion bootlegs of artists that still have stuff out there, but there's, I don't think there's any sense and stuff in print right now so if you can find that black flame bootleg anywhere get your hands on it <laughs> that's a that's unbelievable that there's no sam hain material that's in print currently yeah and you know and glenn's always been smart and he it's definitely you know he must own the rights to it back again or something or maybe he sold the rights to someone and they're just in but that it is a shame that that stuff isn't in print and you know He's, he's, you know, he's very weird about that stuff too, because I mean, with his advent of vinyl being such a big deal again, man, there, there's, I'm, I'm not, I'm shocked that there hasn't been like Misfits, you know, seven inch collection represses yeah. and, and, and vinyl, you know, like some vinyl box set, you know, in a, in a Samane box set. And I'll be the first one to admit, I'll plunk that money down for that stuff. Wow. You know, I was even just... though I have the original, in original copies of, of those records. I'll yeah. still buy the represses. That way I can retire my original. Now, that's how you know, I feel yeah. too. You know, especially yeah, if that uh, stuff came out like remastered and like heavy gram vinyl, that'd be sick, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't even get like the, the four classic, you know, Danzig albums in, you know, on vinyl. And that's a shame. Yeah. That's the, the, the copies that are floating around are bootlegs taken from, you know, just CD. You know, I think, um, and you might know the answer to this, uh, we did a Rollins Band hard volume classic records episode, and I don't think any of that stuff's in print either, like hard volume. Lifetime. No. Um, that stuff, really weird you bring that up, because I've been on a kick of that Texas Hotel era stuff lately, and I listened to the hard volume CD just a few weeks ago, and, and I was like, yeah, I don't that's a, i think the only thing that's been repressed is is a lifetime cd of on vinyl wow. there was a licensed repress of that that came out recently but hard volume and um animal machine lps like a lot of that texas hotel stuff isn't even available on on you know it might be available on digital to stream but not available for sale. I don't think so, man, because I looked for it actually on um, Apple Music. I mean, I have all that stuff. Um, I mean, because there was a period of time where I actually have like several different copies of those two records. And one record I bought, it was funny, like I the vinyl of Lifetime. I was There was a record store that was going out of business um, up the street from where I lived when I lived in Park Slope. And I just happened to walk in there one day and they were selling everything for like, you know, cheap. Like saw there was lifetime. It was like five bucks. I was, I was standing there in front of the guy. I checked out, you know, it was opened. Obviously I looked at the condition of the record and I don't, this might even, this might not even be real, but on the, on the, the sleeve was written a note to Mitch Burry of Adams mass signed Henry Rollins. And uh, I don't know if it's actually his signature, but it's kind of cool. And the dude was like, saw me looking at it. And I'm like, oh, look at this. And the guy was like kind of bummed out that he was selling it. 
but uh but yeah i own several copies cds you know because the cd versions always had like live stuff like tagged at the end yeah they always had extra extra like the dewey ep extra stuff on it too yeah and those live recordings are like um, great like like that that band couldn't be fucked with man like at that time i i I, I must have seen that original Rollins band lineup at least like 12 times. Yeah, actually, we, Randy and I, when we covered this record, we, we talked about how and in, how intense like the live recordings are. And in some way, I mean, you, you and I both play music. We're both in bands. We both heard live recordings of our bands. And we've been like, wow, that's really what we sound like. And to be that confident in a one take live, you know, no fixing type scenario of your material to be that confident in that is fucking awesome, I think. And and that's because that band was like grinding all the time, man, playing live, like touring their asses off and, you know, were about music. You know, they weren't trying to be cool and like, you know, you know, that make a image type thing you know they were about music you know they were like jazz guys or blues guys or yeah, something they, like that they were rehearsing you know four to five days a week and he had he had picked up on that from greg ginn when he was a flag because that's what they did yeah and you know those live recordings are just straight to dat straight from the mixing board and onto dat like no fucking around you Have know you... there was no pro tools fixing no those no recordings no, you, the dat dat was like a new format back then. You know, it's like, oh, cool, yeah, we and, have this like ninety minute digital cassette or whatever we can record shit on. Yeah, well, that, that was the nineties, man. <laughs> yeah. So while uh, you hinted that you, you know, th- and this is another heavy horror topic is uh, the the movie, the forthcoming film by Richard Stanley, which is his interpretation of the H.P. Lovecraft short story, The Color from Outer Space. And you mentioned in your text message that you'd actually seen this film. Yeah. Um, right now here in L.A., Beyond is going on. And it lasts pretty much like three weeks of screenings of soon-to-be-released films, classic, you know, science fiction and horror uh, stuff that maybe needs to get picked up for distribution. Like there, there's, there's a ton of different stuff. And, um, Scott Carlson from repulsion and I are, are friends and, and uh, I'm also the repulsion's booking agent, but, um, Scott and I have a lot of, you know, nerdy stuff in common. And, and we, uh, I ended up not being able to get tickets in time. They sold out, but Scott ended up with an extra ticket. So, uh, we went and saw, uh, Richard Stanley's new film the Col- and the color of space. And Scott had been warned that the movie was going to be kind of a shit show. And it, it, it was definitely not that it was great. And, you know, so any Richard Stanley fans that are out there and hear this interview, like it's definitely worth seeing. Definitely go see it at a theater if you can. Um, Nicholas Cage in it is great and he does his thing <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't overdo it um, but 
he does what is required and he it does the film the story does require that he freak out a little and and he freaks out in a great way um and you know i've been fortunate enough to see like uh hardware and theater when it came out and um and i own a copy of dust devil yeah and and i'm a i'm a big richard stanley fan and um it was really cool to see. I mean, this guy hasn't been able to make a film in 20 plus years uh, that he got to make a film with no studio interference and he didn't fuck it up. And uh, I, I'm not fam- too familiar with the short story that it that is taken from, but Scott is. And Scott says that this movie is the clo- one of the cl- is the closest interpretation possible of a Lovecraft story yet. Well, thanks for uh, taking time out today, man. I appreciate it, and um, I hope you enjoy your Halloween. And um, you know, everyone else out there, enjoy the holiday. I hope everyone's uh, checking out some great movies and really embracing you know the season. You know. Yeah, man. Thank, thanks so much for asking me to do this. And like, yeah, like, cause this is my favorite time of the year. Um, it, it's it's one of the only holidays I actually get excited about and going and seeing like going to like haunted houses and and the mazes that are, that happen all over Los Angeles and and stuff. So um, I'm I'm really stoked and flattered that you asked me to do this. Yeah, we should do this more often, man. I think there's uh, definitely some other stuff we can talk about that I think would be equally as cool. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm totally into it. Cool. All right, thanks a lot, Ron, and I'll catch you guys next week. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. Take care.